Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books in some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine, or culture. If we read literature seriously, it is because, as C.S. Lewis says in his An Experiment in Criticism, we seek an enlargement of our being. You've probably experienced, when reading the great poets of the past, such an enlargement of your being. However, Poets do not figure prominently, if at all, in the media or public square. Those that do may not strike you as particularly inspiring. Perhaps you assume, therefore, that recent poetry is not worth reading. Even if you do not make that assumption, maybe you have no idea about which poets are worth reading. In this episode, therefore, James Matthew Wilson will recommend five contemporary poets, every Catholic with an interest in literature, should read. James Matthew Wilson is Cullen Foundation Chair in English Literature and the Founding Director of the Master of Fine Arts Program in Creative Writing at the University of St. Thomas Houston. He also serves as the Poet-in-Residence for the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Divine Liturgy, as Poetry Editor of Modern Age magazine and Series Editor of Colosseum Books at the Franciscan University of Steubenville Press. He is an award-winning scholar of philosophical theology and literature. As a poet and critic of contemporary poetry, his work appears regularly in such magazines and journals as First Things, The Wall Street Journal, The Hudson Review, Modern Age, The New Criterion, Dappled Things, Measure, The Weekly Standard, Front Porch Republic, The Raintown Review, National Review, and The American Conservative. His books include The Vision of the Soul, Truth, Goodness and Beauty in the Western Tradition, published by Catholic University of America Press, The Fortunes of Poetry in an Age of Unmaking, published by Wiseblood, The Catholic Imagination in Modern American Poetry, also published by Wiseblood, The Strangeness of the Good, published by Angelico, The Poetic Sequence, The River of the Immaculate Conception, published by Wiseblood Press, and I Believe in One God, Praying the Nicene Creed, published by the Catholic Truth Society. Professor James Matthew Wilson, welcome. Thank you, Father. Thanks for having me. What has driven you to write and study poetry? Well, uh, so I I started my habit of writing as a fiction writer and was writing short stories and novels. Um, But one day I started trying to figure out how iambic pentameter worked, which is the standard meter in uh, English poetry, most famous, of course, because of of Shakespeare, but uh, but it's pretty much the standard meter of all um, metrical verse in English. And I discovered that this thing that verse has that poetry does not have was a truly great thing. And I spent a whole hour trying to just write a single line of verse, which was a sonnet every day for five long years. And then I went home that evening after I sketched this out on a pad and wrote my first sonnet. And that fascination with the carving of language that down to the syllable, it's weighed and and refined like the finest rhetoric and weighed with the rhythm of music uh, has has never ceased to fascinate me. Now, I'm talking about this in highly 
personal terms, but they're, I think the fascination is not merely personal. Um, going back to the ancients, and I'm thinking of, of Plato and Homer here, um, and on through to the contemporary world, uh, people have have always been fascinated by the way in which when you measure language, it takes on a form that is already steeped in beauty and seems to open onto mysteries beyond itself. And meter itself, although it sounds like it's just the mechanics of language, actually is the beginning of that opening. It's the beginning of that mystery. And so um, I, I think I have, a, the, as it were, the whole literary tradition saying that there's something mysterious, you know, almost almost sacramental about meter and the way in which it shapes human speech, giving it form and depth and a kind of splendor that opens on to um, uh, things beyond the merely human and things beyond uh, what language normally uh, can describe. And is there a guiding theme in your own poetry? Uh, it is actually it's it's uh, and I'm, I suppose I'm not alone in this, but it's the. Um, uh, one of the, the steady focuses of of my work over the years has been, you might say, twofold. It's um, it's the contemplation of of things in their being, in their existence and the entrance into the mystery and meaning of things, the way in which, for instance, um, as Dante put it, uh, the way in which not only scripture and poetry are polysemous, that is to say, multiple, uh, uh, um, having multiple meanings, polysemantic, but also the way in which those meanings help us to understand not only human activity, but the, but the natural order of the world. And so um, you might say that it's sort of a, a, a three-step theme. It's the contemplation of seeing things as they are and discovering that when we see things as they are, their depths open up and reveal their connections to other things. And these connections in turn lead us not only to see the natural order of things, but they lead us, as, as Thomas Aquinas says in the introduction to his commentary on uh, Pseudo Dionysius's divine names, they lead us uh, up to God himself as the creator of all things. So um, this attempt to, first of all, to perceive the intrinsic being and goodness of things uh, is also, in my view, just part of this general, it's a general literary quest um, that's not particular to me, but in fact, it's just why people read books in the first place, to to hear news of God and to know the, the order of things and the cause of all things. And there is a glut of publications for academics on contemporary poetry. Mm -hmm. But how can the general reader keep abreast of developments and separate the wheat from the chaff? Well, that can be hard to do. Um, it's a common lament among contemporary poets that there's more poetry being published today than at any time in history, and on balance, fewer readers than in most times of history. Because, of course, at one point, poetry, which is the only universal art, it's the only art that's found in every culture and civilization throughout time and throughout the world. Uh, it nonetheless, in our day, it has become a minority art because filmmaking 
and then of course novel writing before that. Both are excellent ways of telling stories and one of the classic functions of, of poetry is the telling of stories. So some of that duty has been usurped, you might say, by other by other art forms. Um, but it is possible to find truly superb poetry amid the glut indeed. And um, so the places I look are, um, are two magazines that are focused on poetry of genuine quality, which in my view entails poetry that that's in contact with the metrical tradition and the, the long uh, standing metrical practices of the English poets. And so this is just in, for an American or an English speaking audience, the places that are most obvious to look would be um, in a magazine like Dappled Things, which is specifically a Catholic magazine and dedicated to supporting a Catholic literary revival in our day. Uh, the American religious magazine, First Things, publishes good poems in every issue. Um, uh, the magazine National Review publishes one poem in every issue, but they're usually quite good. And uh, and then there are there's a wider range of other smaller magazines that also publish good poetry. Um, Plow, for instance, would be one. But for most people, uh, since the advent of the printing press, if they read poems, they read them um, primarily in anthologies. And so happily, there have been some really excellent anthologies published recently. Uh, Edward Short edited the St. Mary's Book of Christian Verse, which is actually a uh, is a, a volume that far exceeds what the title makes it sounds as if it's up to doing. It, it's actually a fine anthology of poetry in English from the Middle Ages up to the present. Um, uh, a book that my uh, publishing imprint, Coliseum Books, just published was by the American poet Ryan Wilson. He published a book with us uh, called Proteus Bound, which is a book of selected translations from the ancient world up to the turn of the 20th century. And that that is itself a kind of marvelous education in the history of poetry. Um, he translates uh, five or six different languages in the course of the book. And then finally, um, for people who are interested in contemporary American poetry, um, Micah Maddox and Sally Thomas recently published a book with Paraclete Press, an anthology called Christian Poetry in America Since 1940. And um, uh, it's, it is itself a very interesting anthology and readable. It's it's not that long. So it's it's about the right length for the casual reader. You mentioned how there's been an expansion of publications and scholarship on contemporary verse, but uh, diminish, a diminishing audience. And that's the theme that Dana Joya discussed in his 1991 article in The Atlantic, Can Poetry Matter? Mm -hmm. It elicited a huge response, both positive and negative. Have, has the situation changed notably since then? For better or for worse? Uh, it, it has. Uh, so so at one point, Dana, uh, in the early part of this century, was um, was chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. And one of his uh, duties or responsibilities in that period was to establish surveys of, of how much people were reading. And I can at least say that in the United States, the the number of people who are regularly reading poetry has 
somewhere in the neighborhood of tripled over the last 10 years. Um, so there has been an increase to what that's attributable is it's not a mystery. There are some good guesses, but um, uh, but uh, but I, I, I'm not going to I won't myself try to parse them because I'm not quite certain as the cause. I will say this. One of the causes must must surely be a number of poets taking seriously what uh, Joya proposed in that essay. Um, and among the things that he was proposing was, first of all, a restoration of of real craft in poetry, that poetry not just be a kind of um, loosely formed prose meditation cut into lines, which is what a lot of poetry looked like in the 1960s, 70s and 80s in the United States and beyond. Um, two, he proposed reconnecting um, poetry, which so, so many people encounter on the page with performance. And this is something um, that I think has been very important. And he meant that in two two respects. First, that poets really need to be composing for the ear. As soon as the written word is severed from the spoken word, something has gone wrong with the art of poetry. And I would say, in fact, something's gone wrong with the art of literature more generally. But in poetry in particular, poetry is always a kind of measured speech, a refined speech. And so if it, if it can't be spoken brilliantly aloud, it's not good poetry and it's not going to be very impressive on the page. So he's been really instrumental in reconnecting poetry with performance, poetry with music. Um, and a lot of poets have taken up that mantle. Um, quite a few poets I know, including myself, are now working with composers quite regularly to, to um, set words to music. Um, and then there's a third thing. There's in the 20th century, beginning with modernism, uh, art began to be reconceived. The arts in general, the fine arts in general, began to be reconceived in terms of self-expression. But self-expression is not a very good raison d'etre for the arts. Um, even when poets are talking about themselves, if they're not talking about the universal human nature, they're really not saying much at all. And so one of the other things that Dana recommended in that essay was, a, you might say, a decentering of or even emptying of of the self of the poet to be at the service both of the work of art itself, but also of the literary tradition. And so there's been a great rise in public performance of, of poetry where it's not a poet reading his own work, but poets sharing the great poems of the tradition. and inviting people into a much broader vision of this art form than they would get if it was just a poet reciting from his own book of, of poems. It's, it's in that spirit that I wanted to join you today to talk about the poets we're going to discuss. And coming back to that essay, Can Poetry Matter? In a recent article for Catholic World Reports, you claimed that only religious people continue to read serious literature and poetry because they alone retain a belief in a transcendent end, the soul and the soul shaping influence of good literature. So as you reply to the question posed in Dana Joya's 1991 essay, yes, poetry can matter, but only to the religious. Uh, I wouldn't put it quite that way. Um, I think it's important to note, since we've already started talking about Dana Joya, that if if can poetry matter is his most widely read and uh, his, truly his great seminal essay that that defi has defined a whole age in the arts in the United States. Um, 
another of his essays, perhaps second in a close second in importance, is one from 2012 called The Catholic Writer Today, where he lamented the minority or even insignificant position of Catholicism in American literature in our day. And he looks back you know, somewhat wistfully to the, the mid 20th century, where the most influential writers of the day were largely Catholic writers, Thomas Merton, Flannery O'Connor, uh, Walker Percy and uh, Dorothy Day and so on. Um, what the connection that that Dana doesn't make between those two essays, but I think is a connection that that does need to be made is the following. People have always turned to literature for two entirely interrelated reasons. One is the intrinsic beauty of the work so that it's worth contemplating. But think about that word for a moment, contemplation. If a word, if words don't open up onto mystery, if a work doesn't open up onto something beyond itself and help us to re-envision the world and to re-envision our place within it and the structure of things, then um, if it didn't, if literature didn't do that, people would never have begun um, reading, listening to, and enjoying literature in the first place. I, it's, it's. It's a marvel to me that when we look back, for instance, uh, on ancient Greek culture, how much the the citizens of Athens and of ancient Greece shaped their understanding of themselves uh, by reflection on Homer's poems. Uh, even Plato's philosophy is, in some sense, a commentary on the poetry of, of Homer. And so it has always been the case that human beings have turned to literature in order to arrive at a more profound understanding of not just human nature, but human nature and the context, the cosmos in which human nature exists. And so if literature can't offer that, it seems inevitable to me that people will turn away from it. But for people who are alert to the mystery of existence, which will, uh, and that group will be composed largely, though certainly not exclusively, of religious people, for those people, great literature will always be a living resource of, of wisdom and consolation. Um, what we see broadly, of course, is that um, as as people people's souls become flattened uh, and made tepid or indifferent to things, uh, as people, in other words, suffer a kind of death of wonder, that yes, for those people, literature will broadly and on the whole cease to be a resource because if you have no wonder in the heart already then why would you wonder bother with the wonders of literature that said um one of the great things about literature is it can awaken tepid souls that that's something that the arts do um and it's why i think in part why uh pope benedict said that the the only convincing apology for the catholic faith uh, are the lives of the saints and the works of art that the church has produced. He's not saying that only religious people can appreciate these things. He's saying that these are the things by which people outside of the church first enter into the spiritual life. And I, I think that that's, that history testifies to the truth of those words. And why should we read contemporary poetry simply for its beauty or for its ethical, spiritual, and political value too? for its social criticism, its insight into man's current condition, 
and the way it immunizes us against the manipulation of ideologues by sharpening our language and thought. Those are excellent. <laughs> that's that's practically an excellent answer in itself. Um, so this is a this is a really important question. If you look at the way in which contemporary people approach the arts, they actually often do it in a bifurcated way. And here's what I mean by that. If you ask someone about their interest in music, um, the majority of people ref will refer to songs of recent vintage and usually just popular or mass cultural works, pop music, rock music. Uh, and they'll have uh, and they'll have at best a few decades catalog of the great works that they're thinking of. And certainly almost, you know, it rarely extends back uh, to the to the work of the great composers, which is just on a different plane than than most pop music. Um, but when it comes to literature, um, when people have a taste in literature, most often they actually are more interested in the great works of the past. And I think rightly so, because part of the arts is an aspiration to permanence and the the what we generally call the classic works of our literary tradition are works that we want to return to not just in our own lives again and again but we that we want the generations themselves to return to we want everybody to have read dante for instance we want everybody to have read homer um and a person can be a well-read literate person without knowing a single work of by a contemporary writer I don't see that um, in itself as a problem. I see it as more of a problem when people know only the contemporary and not the tradition than people knowing as it were the older tradition but not necessarily being attuned with the contemporary. That said, there's something distinctive about encountering well-made work from one's contemporaries or near contemporaries, people who whose work are is reflecting to some extent at least the furniture or the texture of the world in which we're still living. I find that that the effects of that are, are twofold. One, there's a familiarity that is that immediately intrigues one and 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 draws one into the work. But second of all, um, while there's so much that's permanent in the human condition, um, it's helpful for us to see a reflection of our age and when literature's done well it usually puts our age in the context of of broader and greater and more permanent things and so it can be provide a kind of insight onto the present moment but under the light of of eternity and um although it may escape the notice faithful catholics recite poetry regularly and devoutly to commune with the triune god through christ in the liturgy the church prays with the psalms and hymns can the reading of good sac non-sacred poetry help us pray liturgical po poetry more deeply? I, I think it must, because among the things that it would do is you never read a poem without trying to understand the poem. You hear the beauty of the poem and you want to hear how that beauty unfolds, uh, you know, uh, uh, unfolds meaning in a beautiful manner. And I think that can that can sharpen the attentions for those of us who are in the liturgy and maybe have too much of a tendency to recite the words without hearing them or entering into them. This spring, I um, ran a retreat or directed a retreat 
uh, at a Benedictine monastery in um, in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I was only doing part of the retreat. Most of the retreat was was prayer and silence with the with the Benedictine monks. Um, but my portion was to talk with the retreatants about the the hymns for the Feast of Corpus Christi that Thomas Aquinas wrote. And it was such a delight to go through both the Latin and the English with them and to show them the ways in which the great saint and angelic doctor was managing to make his own poetry an almost Eucharistic kind of reality where the human and the divine, the flesh and the spirit were, were constantly being um, dialectically engaged and, and even at times unified or drawn together in the hymns. Um, it usually took us an hour and 15 minutes to read through those hymns and they're not very long. So, and, and sometimes we didn't get through them all. And so I found that a, uh, a really promising experience for awakening Catholics to the importance of our own liturgical language. Some of the poets that you recommend are noted for their adherence to formalism or defense of it. And you've already alluded to what formalism is earlier on. Mm -hmm. Could you just state more explicitly what formalism is? Sure. Yeah. Well, so formalism can have a couple meanings. Uh, if if you hear me use it, I'm more likely to be using it in the in the way after which I think you're asking. And that is, um, uh, as as many people know, at the turn of the 20th century, and up through the middle of the 20th century, the, the modernist movement in all of the arts was a great source of, of disruption and even revolution. And it, and it led to some, uh, some odd developments uh, in the visual arts, for instance. There was a turn away from representation towards abstraction. Um, in music, there was a movement towards atonality. And then in poetry, there were several changes that occurred but the but the most decisive one was a break with the historic practice of thinking of poetry as literature that is written in verse and this created you might say an identity crisis for modern poetry because if poetry is not written in verse then what makes poetry something other than prose that's been sort of diced up into lines. Well, I think there's an argument to be made for free verse poetry, a very strong argument, in fact. However, um, that strong argument can't overcome the fact that when poets infuse their language or measure their language, chisel their language with meter, that something happens even to the most plain language. And here's just an example I love. In, in English, probably the best single line of poetry is the opening of Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. Well, that line, to be or not to be, that is the question, has the exact same meter as the following line, the toilet's clogged again, please call the plumber. A very plain bit of speech indeed. Uh, probably not what most people would think of when they think of poetry. And yet poets such as Robert Frost showed that when you take that plain speech and give it metrical expression, that actually it does become elevated. It does somehow take on a kind of mystery or radiance to itself. Um, that's, I think, the I mentioned Robert Frost. I'll mention him I'll stick with him for just a moment. That's one of the great uh, achievements of his book from the modernist period called North of Boston, 
which is a series of blank verse, so metrical narratives and monologues spoken by rural New England people, farmers mostly. And the the book is a is one of the greatest achievements of American literature because somehow when plain speech is measured, you don't turn farmers into Hamlet, as it were, but you do give to that plain rural speech a kind of permanent form that makes it worthy of our memorization and attractive to us and fascinating and indeed mysterious. And the poets you've selected seem to combine both technical mastery, literary insights, and the poetry is also in, infused by Christian, in many cases, Catholic faith. Is mm-hmm. that the reason you've chosen these five poets? Yes, I was. So I, w- I when I was asked to provide a, a number of poets, I wanted to, the criterion I set was thinking of contemporary poets, by which I mean um, poets who are either alive now or, or were living until very recently. But I wanted it to be poets who, not who are just beginning their career, but who uh, have actually fully established themselves and are are approaching the end of their careers. And um, you know, two of the poets uh, that I want to talk about are deceased, and um, and then the other three are are respectively in their 90s, 80s, and 70s. So these are poets who are who are coming to the end of their career, and we can begin to judge and take the measure of what they've accomplished in their in their life. Um, the other criterion was uh, was was twofold. Poets who are committed to formal excellence, whether in meter or in free verse. And then secondly, poets who are alive to the wonder and the mystery of human life and the way in which the drama of our lives opens onto our encounter with the divine. So coming to the first poet, uh, Richard Wilbur, Mm -hmm. 1921 to 2017, he was the second U.S. poet laureate, a translator of classical French plays, a two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, among other prizes, and the librettist of Leonard Bernstein's Candide. You've called him the greatest American poet of the second half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. That's reason enough to read him, but is it the only reason? Gosh, when the description I gave you of what makes poetry interesting for human beings really doesn't find finer expression in American letters in the 20th century than it does it in Wilbur. Wilbur was from the very beginning of his career, and he began publishing soon after his return from service in Europe during the Second World War. um, His contemporaries, all of whom tended to be actually masters of meter, rhyme and stanza, nonetheless recognized uh, an uncanny power in his poetry. And for many years, he was celebrated and also criticized for the kind of formal perfection of his verse. But um, some people complained that he he didn't take a chance by which he was he was there was formal perfection. It was marmorial poetry, but without. um, The complaint was, uh, but without any of the, the sort of the bold explorations that that many contemporary poets after modernism had had undertaken or from modernism after and on had taken. 
Um, but I don't think that that was ever an accurate portrayal of his achievement, actually. Uh, he he not only was one of the great craftsmen of the American 20th century, he was also one of the most profound of poets who had a capacity to find, to express in contemporary language, um, the great drama of the soul. And he was doing that from the very beginning of his career. And is there any collection in particular that you would recommend? Yes. So so Wilbur's Wilbur's collected poems from 1943 to 2004 is is probably the easiest book to get. He published one more. He lived. He as you said, he just died in 2017. So he published his last book, Ante Rooms, when he was in his uh, either late 80s or early 90s. So he did publish one more book after this. Um, so this is the easiest one to buy. But his his single greatest achievement, his most perfect single book, is one he published in the 1950s called Things of This World. In there, you'll find um, his most important uh, major poems. Interestingly, he was a great poet of his early life and, and also of his old age. So um, in it, so Things of This World is, is perhaps his most important and perfect single collection, but some of the poems he wrote in his 70s and 80s are actually stand out as among his greatest achievements as well. Is there a poet you would like to read by him? Yes, yes. Here's one. Um, Wilbur spent a year in Rome on a fellowship and he wrote six important poems all set in Rome. And this is, I think, the greatest of them. A Baroque wall fountain in the Via Chiara. And just by way of preface, since when one's hearing a poem for the first time, it can be difficult to take it all in. What what we'll hear in this poem is Wilbur describing two different fountains, one that's Baroque and one that is austere. And he looks at these fountains to see which one is the most adequate expression of the end of human life and, as it were, the shape of the human soul. And it culminates very conveniently in St. Francis coming into the poem and settling the debate almost like a deus ex machina. Under the bronze crown, too big for the head of the stone cherub whose feet a serpent has begun to eat, sweet water brims a cockle and braids down past spattered mosses, breaks on the tipped edge of a second shell and fills the massive third below. It spills in threads then from the scalloped rim and makes a scrim or summary tent for a fawn menage and their familiar goose. Happy in all that ragged, loose, collapse of water, its effortless descent and flatteries of spray, the stocky god upholds the shell with ease, watching about his shaggy knees the goatish innocence of his babes at play. His fawness all the while leans forward slightly into a clambering mesh of water lights, her sparkling flesh in a secular ecstasy, her blinded smile bent on the sand floor of the trefoil pool, where ripple shadows come and go in swift reticulum more addling to the eye than wine, and more interminable to thought than pleasure's calculus. Yet since this all is pleasure, flash, and waterfall, must it not be too simple? Are we not more intricately expressed in the plain fountains that Moderna set before St. Peter's, the main jet struggling aloft until it seems at last at rest in the act of rising, until the very wish of water is reversed, that heaviness born up to burst in a clear high cavorting head, 
to fill with blaze and then in gauze delays in a gnat like shimmering in a fine illumined version of itself decline and patter on the stones its own applause if that is what men are or should be if those water saints display the pattern of our arete what of these showered fawns in their bizarre spangled and plunging house they are at rest in fullness of desire for what is given they do not tire of the smart of the sun the pleasant water douse and riddled pool below reproving our disgust and our ennui with humble insatiety francis perhaps who lay in sister snow before the wealthy gate freezing and praising might have seen in this no trifle but a shade of bliss that land of tolerable flowers that state as near and far as grass where eyes become the sunlight and the hand is worthy of water the dreamt land toward which our hungers leap all pleasures pass thank you and um, is there anything else you'd like to say about wilbur before we pass to the next poets or about that poem in particular um what's what's incredible about that poem is it's it's gorgeously formed, but it's expressive of the deepest thing we can possibly ask ourselves about, which is what are we born for? <laughs> are we born to be in secular ecstasy or are we born to rise like that austere fountain before St. Peter's up towards the divine? And of course, the synthesis, the, the sacramental synthesis that St. Francis offers is, is so beautiful that indeed we are embodied creatures, but we're called to eventually to occupy glorified bodies bodies made capable of uh, enduring the light of heaven. And it's just, I, I just find it amazing that he managed to get all that into one poem. Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way, more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound, or one euro can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.